This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking ahead to this weekend's coronation, asking whether generational reparations are just a token gesture, and learning about the art of hedge laying. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, Daily Mail writer, author of Queen of Our Times and co-presenter of the Tea at the Palace podcast, Robert Hardman, looks ahead to the reign of King Charles III. Robert joins us now alongside the historian David Starkey, who's also interviewed in the magazine by Lynn Barber this week. Robert, what sort of monarch do you think King Charles III will be? Uh, well, as I say in my piece, Laura, I think he's a king in a hurry. He's, he's you know, he, he accepts that he's now the oldest newcomer to the throne we've ever had. I mean, everyone used to say, well, the, the Queen's the longest reigning, longest serving monarch, well, which was true, but it meant that he was the longest serving heir to the throne. Uh, he'll be 75 later this year, and he can't really afford to, um, you know, do much chin scratching and work out what he wants to do. He has been giving it a great deal of thought. He didn't tell us what he planned to do while his mother was queen, simply because I think he thought that was uh, inappropriate. Um, So we were always asking, you know, what's the reign of Charles III going to look like? And I think already we see it's it's going to be more transparent. I mean, you know, the fact that Accession Council, there it was on, on TV on day two, I think inevitably he's, he's got to move with the times. There'll be sort of modernising touches here and there, which um, I'm sure some spectator readers will, will may find a bit sort of, I mean, already with the, with, the, with the coronation, you know, people are saying, well, hang on, where, where are the coronets? You know, <laughs> where are the pages? Think, do you think the coronation will give us some indication of how he's planning to rule? I, I, I don't want to say how he's planning to rule. I think, I think it, it, it's a sort of reflection of the character of the man. I mean, I think there are sort of, you know, many sort of <laughs> deeply spiritual bits, but there's some oh, modernising bits. spiritual. Come on. Oh, this is, yeah. this is, this is <laughs> merely pick and, it's licorice all sorts religion. It's, it's, a, it's a, I mean, let's be, be deadly serious about it. It's a little bit of dab of this and a little bit of dab of that. There's nothing serious about it at all, in my view. And again, the, the thing that's predominant is, of course, the large green man on the invitation card. Fundamentally, the king is a worshipper of nature. He's a Gaia worshipper, the most primitive form of worship ever. <laughs> and it's really important that we understand this. This is, you know, this is Wicker Man stuff. I'm it's not, not sure it's Wicker Man stuff. <laughs> it's I no mean, more, he's it's sticking, no more he's sticking to the. He's pretty much sticking to the sort of rubric of King Edgar at Bath in 973, isn't he? No, Recognition, uh, oath, anointing. Crowning and homage. I mean, and, and 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 then we get Holy Communion at the end. I mean, that's it's it's pretty 
old school. That is old school, but of course the real emphasis of the service is quite different. The emphasis on the service is the multi-faith aspect. This is the thing that's designed to be noticed. The, the innovations entirely push in one direction, but for me much the most important thing is the historical illiteracy of it. That's to say that underneath the conformity that Robert talks about, there's something fundamentally dangerous, which is this is the depoliticized coronation. Remember the fact that MPs and peers are not there. It's for the first time since the Glorious Revolution. It's for the first time since 1689. The fact that the king had to scuttle off to Westminster Hall to appease them, which he had to do yesterday. Uh, it's an extraordinarily foolish start to the reign. I, be I began taking him with fresh seriousness at the beginning of the reign when he encountered, uh, when he went to Parliament, when he addressed them in Westminster Hall when he said, I know what I am, I know I'm a parliamentary king. He's undone that. And I think he's undone it very dangerously. And the thing that I find most dangerous, it's a twofold one, it's partly the pantomime. Remember, a coronation is fundamentally theatre. It actually takes place in a thing called the theatre. The crossing of Westminster Abbey is specifically designed for this magnificent show. The fact that you've eliminated the lords, that you've got rid of the coronets, isn't just a minor detail. It means that the grand opera aspect of it is gone. I'm young enough to have watched the coronation of the Queen, uh, old enough to have watched the coronation, maybe <laughs> mentally young enough <laughs> to, to have watched the coronation of the Queen back in 53, uh, and the wonderful technical film which followed. And it was pure theatre, because you have the scarlet and white of the robes of all the peers. So you have a uniform congregation against which the, as it were, the principal characters move, just like an opera, you also have operatic, indeed balletic movements. The extraordinary two moments of drama of the service are when the crown is put upon the king's head and then all the peers put their coronets on. And of course, there would be the second second moment with this because it's the, the usual proper double coronation when and they're described as being like something out of Swan Lake. The peeresses used to have bare arms and they would then put their coronets on as the queen put hers. We've lost this drama, but we've lost something else. The oath does not have its proper meaning. Interestingly enough, we're talking about law. The oath is actually illegal as it's being sworn. The oath is specified in the Act of Parliament of 1689, and it says that the king should swear to rule by the laws passed by statute in Parliament. This was eliminated for George VI and the Queen, so the late Queen, so that you could have the usual blether about all the Commonwealth realms. I mean, I think he's missed an enormous trick. He is But king. David, they had, there were, uh, if you go back through the files on, on 53, all the time people wanted to sort of in, in, introduce new aspects. And, and yes, one, no, one, one of the problems of it was, of changing it, was that since the um, London Declaration of 1949 and the fact that the, all the, the realms, all the monarchs' realms are equal and the mm -hmm. same, then there was this argument that if you do um, single out 
the British Parliament, for whatever it might be in the coronation, all the others will want to do the same thing. There was a, a proposal no, I in understand. I, un- I understand, but uh, the so point you, is, I, is... I think you've got, you have to... You know, they, they, they do evolve. Each coronation is slightly different. And Can I, mean, I you're, just you're point... Saying, no, but you're saying we should, we should, you know, we should have all the, the hereditary peers back in the mix. I mean, they've been expunged from the democratic process, whether one likes that or not, or approves of it or not. The fact is, they, they don't really play the part in the national life they, they used to. Of and course, so to give please, them pride you are preaching... Yeah, Robert, you are preaching... I do understand these things. I am pointing out what the consequences of doing it are. I'm also pointing out, of course I understand, but I'm also pointing out the consequences are an acute diminution of theatre. And remember, this thing most people will watch as theatre. If you cast your mind back to the Queen's funeral, the two moments that hit everybody were the ones of the most traditional ceremony, the removal of the crown and the breaking, or rather the hinging, of the Lord Chamberlain's rod. The ceremony works by and of itself, and this fact has been completely forgotten. And again, this this easy juxtaposition, oh, monarchy's got to modernise. Both words may begin with M. There are, two more, there, are two, there are two more contradictory ones you can barely think about. Monarchy is not modern, and the, the charm of monarchy is not modern. And what is striking is the incoherence of all of this. There was a serious attempt at changing the monarchy at the beginning of the 20th century, um, with both the alteration of royal ceremony, the introduction of really polished, disciplined ceremony, as opposed to the chaos of the Victorian and the Georgian. And secondly, of course, the complete reconstruction of the royal house in 1917. But what's striking about that is the seriousness of the input, the seriousness of the political input. You committees of entirely consisting of prime ministers working on it, thinking about it carefully. There's no sign of anything like this. And instead, the main thrust of the service and the extraordinary, bizarre commentary that everybody in the Abbey will read, because it takes uniquely the the coronation order, has actually got a commentary in the right margin clearly written by the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is a series of missed opportunities and historical illiteracies and actual misdescriptions of what's going on. I mean, again, extraordinary. There's the famous coronation glove, traditionally presented by the Lord of the Manor of Worksop, and it still has the the coat of arms of the last real Lord of the Manor of Worksop, of 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 the Dukes of Newcastle on it. The glove is described as being a symbol of tenderness, lest the hand that wields the sword of justice will be too brutal. This is this is feminist rubbish. <laughs> the, glo- the, glo- the glove is there because the king's hand has been anointed, and it's to protect the anointing. I mean, you know, for somebody to do that is suggests, again, right at the heart of the process, after multitudinous proofreading, Nobody really understands what's going on. One new aspect of the coronation which has ruffled quite a lot of feathers among newspaper columnists in particular this week is the invitation of uh, mm. people to, to swear which the is, oath. Uh, I the result, what you make of that. Yeah, well, it's the resulting exactly of the removal <laughs> of the peers. It's exactly illustrating the point that I've made. And instead, this coronation represents a thoroughly clumsy attempt at substituting the people for the peers. Now, Robert is quite right. This process has been going on for nearly 100 years. It begins much earlier than, than 1999, when Blair drives the hereditaries out of the Lords. It 
it goes back to the 1911 Parliament Act when George V was persuaded to agree to the elimination of the veto of the House of Lords. But the problem is what you have in the, in the Abbey is a kind of parody of what we are. I mean, I had a lovely encounter at dinner last week with one of the a very prominent member of the House of Lords because she is a lady in waiting. That's to say she is a whip in the Lords, rising up and saying, do you know what? It looks more like a Buckingham Palace garden party than a ceremony of state. And she's absolutely <laughs> right. Um, and But should the... I mean, I'd be interested in Robert's view on this. Should the king have the right to say this is what constitutes the nation? Because we have this totally arbitrary selection of 500 winners of the British Empire Medal, you know, Anton Deck, uh, a, a collection of miscellaneous charities. And the reason Anton Deck are there, of course, is can this role be explained? Yes, patrons of the Prince's Trust, but their essential job was to act as decoys to middle-ranking American executives in London so they'd shell out some cash. That's why they're there. <laughs> I mean, it, like like any state occasion, it, it's 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 a multiple um, authors of multiple parts. I mean, you know, yeah, Anton Deck are part of the sort of fairly small royal quotient. I think the king and queen between them um, have had the say on about four hundred invites out of two two thousand two hundred. You know, the, the government is very much involved in this coronation to an extent that we really haven't seen before. I mean, you look at the. The files on, on on 53 Churchill certainly w- was was closely involved, but but uh, but ultimately sort of stood back. And, and so, for example, you had things like the the the, the Court of Claims, which would decide um, which um, hereditaries uh, could uh, do, who could perform what tasks. It's interesting you mentioned actually, David, the uh, the glove uh, always uh, presented by the uh, holder of the Lordship of the Manor of Worksop, which was the Dukes of Newcastle. Unfortunately, the it's Duke of Newcastle at the time is now a golf club. Well, yeah, the Duke of Newcastle. <laughs> Newcastle at the time had, had, had rather stupidly turned the lordship of the manor into a, into a limited company. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, and, yes, and, yes, and, yes. and asked when he when he turned up. But so wait, can, we, can we go yeah. back to but the no, no, really? But, but can no, we go the point, back to the, the point really I'm making is these point. things keep evolving. Yeah, but they so do it, keep changing, and 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 they have to. And I I I just think you couldn't have. I mean, the, the coronation of George the Fourth uh, was the last one. We saw all sorts of wonderful creations, and I'd love to see you know the 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 the, the Lord Great Carver and the Lord the hereditary Lord Fulton and the, the, the king's champion riding in on his horse. I mean, these would all be wonderful things. That was the last coronation to have a coronation banquet, but then William IV did away with all that. So you have a, you know, through history, so, you've had one monarch after another. Gosh, gosh, we you know, Rob, you know, Robert, I never knew that one monarch succeeded another. The dazzling revelations, the dazzling revelations to which I'm being <laughs> subject. The, no, the issue of dispute between us is not that things change. Do you know what, as a professional historian, I'm quite aware of it, and I'm also able to explain it quite thoroughly. What, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm puzzled about is why you accept the mishmash that we've got. It seems to me that what we have is something wholly incoherent. And again, at what level has the government been involved? Is the gov- Was the government party to the decision to invite at random, 500 winners of the British Empire Medal. I mean, who 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 determined the the list of charities? They are they are charities particularly close to Prince to Prince King Charles. Again, it does seem to me that there, that okay, the Court of Claims may have been decided by the Cabinet Office. That accounts for about 11 people, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get 11 people out of whatever number of thousands it is. This bears overwhelmingly the stamp 
of the royal prejudice and the prejudice of the royal press office. And I think it's shown such an unsure touch. Again, we're going back to your point, the, 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 the enormous raspberry with which the idea of the national taking of homage. Can I explain how it could and should have been done? If you'd actually taken the coronation oath seriously, in which the fact that the king swear, because again, you know, all the realms are going to go within his reign. He is king of the United Kingdom of Britain. That's what yeah, he but at the moment he's king of he's king of the, the fourteen other countries as but well, he, and they're part of it. I mean, we can't just assume that they're all going to go. I mean, they've got to play their part. That's that's something else that, that sort of came that has come in in, in recent years. Yeah, and I, we, I, I know I, 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 you're quite right to put me down, David, because I, I absolutely bow defer to your far greater knowledge. But I mean, I, I, just for the benefit of listeners, make the point that you know the Commonwealth is a relatively new construction, and all these realms expect to be there in some number. No, and that and that must happened be. 100 and, years ago. And they must be. But I think equally... And that, inf- that, 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 that influences and informs the sort of form of the service. Yes, it, it, essentially, it, is, it, is, it essentially goes back to the Durham report and, and to the statute, statute of Westminster of 1931. We know that. But the real thing is, let's try and work out how the oath could have been handled properly and should have been handled. Why the coronation matters, why I take it seriously, and I do take it really seriously, is there are two things. We are the only country that actually reversed a revolution of itself and decided to restore the monarchy. We did so because we wanted not a pretend monarch, Oliver Cromwell, with unlimited power, but a real monarch with limited power. And that is the the central feature. The monarchy is primarily the guarantor of what I would call the Royal Republic of England. And in the Royal Republic of England, we are our rights, our freedoms and our liberties, not to a written constitution, but to the processes of history in which the monarchy has played a central part. The key moment of that, the thing that ratifies it, that embeds it firmly in the coronation, is the glorious revolution of 1689 and the fact that the monarch has to swear that oath to the laws as passed in Parliament. What could have been done at that point would have been to have made that pledge mutual. That would have been the moment at which the idea of the congregation responding would have worked wonderfully. The king swears to us and we swear to him. The trouble is, of course, that the church has usurped so much of this role, and I think, in fact, just to throw another piece of red meat at Robert, I think the signs of, <laughs> I think there's, there's, there's signs of Welby being lord to Charles III, um, that, that, the, that the elevation of the position of the church, the displacing of the political element of the service, the pushing out, I mean, not simply of the peers, but of MPs, mm-hmm. is an act of profound unwisdom. Of course, it's... I, I, I would agree with you there that I, I can totally get that the, the House of uh, Lords has been, you know, on the basis that it's been expunged from the democratic process all but 22 ago, that it, it's got a, a very, very reduced... It's, it, they haven't been completely... Wiped out, no, no. but that, the, but 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 the, the ration is fifty, as I say in my piece. Um, it's it's fifty to the House of Lords, fifty to the House of Commons. I think last time around there were nine hundred and ten peers and peeresses and six hundred and seventy-five MPs, both, including the whole spouses. Of both houses. It was the uh, whole, no, not quite. Houses. I mean, but the ones who couldn't squeeze in were fobbed off by being given four seats in the best grandstands outside. So everyone was happy. I I I I, I, I can quite understand now why you would not have 
all those peers there. I do think, actually, perhaps there should have been more of a, a, a representation uh, from the House of Commons to just say, we'll only give 50 MPs and we'll only give 50 peers, and we can get away with it, because actually, frankly, everybody has such a low view of politicians that if you announced you were only going to have <laughs> two MPs <laughs> yeah. and two peers, everyone would have gone, well, that's too, too many. Um, but I, but I, I do agree with you on that, David. Yeah, I, I yeah. think, you know, there, there, there should be a greater representation of our uh, sort of democratic process in there. I, I get that. But but imagine also the sheer folly of doing it when the sovereign grant comes to be renegotiated, because that is dealt with by Parliament, and you will have a lot of long memories. No, no, I'm being very serious. This is a serious snub, uh, and it's been taken as a serious snub, mm. and I think it's a profoundly foolish thing to do. But it's, again, it's part of this business of the king, Robert said right at the beginning, in a hurry, trying to present his vision of a civil society. And I think that concedes much too much initiative to a constitutional monarch. I do not think he should be in the position of simply choosing. It's the first time this has happened since 1689 that there has been, as it were, a mere, mere potluck Oh, I want this, I want that. It's very, very dangerous, as, as indeed is the prioritisation of religion. Uh, again, to throw a little more red meat, one of the great problems with the king is his aestheticism. Um, if you look at the disastrous monarchs in English history, Henry III builds the abbey, Richard II, who is dethroned, and Charles I, who is dethroned, they are all notably aesthetic, and they have religious affectations, and... Thank you, Robert and David. Next. In the magazine this week, Sean Thomas writes about generational reparations, that is, the question of whether families with murky pasts should pay compensation for their ancestors' wrongdoings. He joins us now, along with Professor Christine Keneally, historian and author of This Great Calamity, The Irish Famine, 1845-52. to Sean, could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your own ancestry and whether you could be due reparations? <laughs> well, yes and no is the answer. Um, my sister did some genealogy, which a lot of people are doing these days, tracing themselves back. And it's a lot easier because so much is now online. And we found out that about 150 years ago, our family was married to the Tremaines, who were really quite an ancient Cornish family, I'm Cornish, and who go right back to the 12th century, and that's traceable. And, and, and the Tremaines in the 12th century uh, were married to the Peverells, who were a very ancient aristocratic Norman family, the Peverells of the Peak, and, and they came over with the Conqueror. And there is, in fact, possibly, if not probably, uh, a, a descent from William the Conqueror himself. So it, it's, a, it's an extraordinary... I mean, it's actually, almost everybody's descended from, from kings and all that, but we could actually trace it that we probably descend from William the Conqueror or at least one of his henchmen, one of his major Norman knights. Um, and yet we went very much downhill from there uh, via the Tremaines, lots of kids, lots of divisions of estates. And we ended up as very impoverished tin miners in the 19th century, probably working in the tin mines owned by their forefathers. Hmm. And and the tin miners, as you say in the piece, I mean, the, 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 the sort of conditions to which in which they were labouring were almost unimaginably bad, weren't they? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was a, a famous survey down in the 19th century which said the, the life expectancy of a tin miner was 23, which is even lower than coal miners. They used to get silicosis, a terrible lung disease, arsenic poisoning, 
And also they had to work in these terrible undersea mines. There's a famous one in Penwith called Batalak. Well, they would have to crawl naked for two miles underground to get to, to get to the rock face. And they would do this from the age of 10. You know, we, my family, there's a, a 10-year-old kid, Stephen Moyle, toiling away in a mine aged 10 in the, in the mid-19th century. Hmm. And and so the point of your article, I suppose, really, isn't it, is that is that if you if you dig enough into into every family tree, most people probably have a pretty similar result, i.e., a sort of mixture of ancestors who had real privilege and ancestors who were horribly oppressed or in or impoverished and 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 so on. Is that's that's the sort of um, conclusion, isn't it? That you Absolutely. Um, and I'll, actually, I'll just give one more example to show how close it is. Uh, my my grandmother on my mother's side, a, a woman called. Annie Maud Jory was a so-called bow maiden. And that's a young girl sent at the age of 10 or 11 to smash rocks with a hammer at, at the tin mines. She did it in St. Agnes in North Cornwall. And that's my maternal grandmother. That's how close it is to us. That, that We had ch- almost child slave labor in the UK. Uh, and yet a thousand years ago, yep, yep, Norman knights, kings, earls. Christine, you are a historian of the Irish famine and, and you've recently recently been in the news talking about the Trevelyan family who've said that they would consider giving compensation for their role in the Irish famine. For listeners who might not be aware, could you start by explaining what their role was in the famine and then your views on their stance on reparations? Yes. So Laura Trevelyan is, I think, the great, great, great granddaughter of a man called Charles Trevelyan. And Charles Trevelyan was from Cornwall. He was middle class. He was a career civil servant. He went to um, a university effectively to become a civil servant. He spent his early years of his career in India, which was very traditional, part of the British Empire. He came back and he was very quickly promoted to the head of the treasury. In 1845, the potato blight appeared in Ireland. At this stage, about 50% of Irish people were dependent on potatoes. So this was serious, but the potato had failed before. Nobody knew at this stage it would fail for seven consecutive years, leading to the most lethal famine in Irish history. So when it happened in 1845, the British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel, decided he would put the Treasury in charge of implementing relief policy. Effectively, that meant Charles Trevelyan. So he was not a policy maker, but he was the man who implemented policy. And what do you make of the Trevelyan family now saying that they would like to give reparations to the Irish? Well, I think you know, my first question would be, why now? Why? What? Is it about this particular moment? It seems very cynical, I have to say. And I'm quite familiar with Laura Trevelyan's work. I live in America. She was a BBC correspondent. So you know, I know her face from BBC World News. But also in 2006, she wrote a book about the Trevelyan family. And in it, she very much defended her ancestor, Charles Trevelyan. Um, she said he was, and she uses this phrase, more humane than people have traditionally thought. So it seems quite a reversal has taken place. And I just think this is a token patronising gesture. And, and do you think the reason perhaps why now is because it's becoming quite a fashionable line of argument to for people to sort of interrogate their backgrounds and try and atone for past sins? 
I think maybe not. Again, you know, it's she is very familiar. As I told you, she wrote her book in 2006, so she's very familiar with her background. You know, everybody's quoting the song Fields of Athen Rye, which she um, says was sung to her when she was a correspondent in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. So this is not new. Um, maybe the moment you know, people, especially in America, were talking about racial reckoning, etc. Um, but again, I don't see this empty gesture as doing anything to change the past. To me, I, I just think it's meaningless and you know, she's getting a lot of attention for it. But yeah, I don't see it as being really genuine. Yeah, she's Cornish, Trevelyan, Laura Trevelyan. And famously in the 17th century, many thousands of Cornish people and people from Devon were enslaved by Barbary pirates working out of Morocco. They were called the Saleh Rovers. And, and they would literally, they would, they would take thousands of people from all the little coastal ports along, along Cornwall and Devon. So is Laura Trevelyan going to investigate her Cornish past and then demand money from the King of Morocco? Is she? I mean, it's ridiculous. Why is she, why is she personally responsible for what her great-great-great-grandfather did in Ireland, but has nothing to do with what might have been done to her people 200 years previously? To me, it seems like performative nonsense. It's it's uh, it's it's classic. It's what you know, it's it's. I must personally atone for the sins of my forefathers. It's more about personal satisfaction in a moral way than it is about any historical coherence. Well, Sean, do you think all reparations in in all contexts are are performative nonsense, or is there some context in which you could see an argument for uh, historic generational reparations? Y- yes, but I think it's very limited. I think countries. So I think. If ever there's an end to this hideous war on Ukraine, Russia owes reparations to Ukraine, as Germany owed reparations, in etc. Et I can see countries do have a responsibility. Corporations may be, though it gets more complicated. I think individuals, it's nonsensical. Yeah, because I think, you know, I absolutely agree with you. And I think the other example I would say, cite is Haiti. Um, France, when Haiti broke free, became the first black republic in the world. And France lost its richest colony. And they imposed reparations on Haiti till the 1940s. And we wonder why Haiti is so impoverished today. So again, I would see that as a countrywide need for reparations and for acknowledgement. And Sean, what about, uh, for example, a family perhaps unlike most families, which is uh, the royal family. You know, for example, there's been a new story this week uh, uncovering some more of royal family's historic involvement in the slave trade. And our new king has made sort of supportive noises about research into the ties of the monarchy with the slave trade. For a family that is in a way wrapped up with the nation as well, in a way most families are not, do you think there's an argument that it's right for for the royal family to, to look into the idea of reparations? I think it's fairly absurd because because at one point the, the, the British royal family were Anglo-Saxon kings in the 11th century who were destroyed by the Normans and and suffered the harrying of the North by William the Conqueror. So is Prince Charles on the one hand going to apologise for whatever he, his family did in the 19th century or 18th century, but then demand recompense for what happened to his family in the 9th, 10th century? Again, it's, it's, it's incredibly complicated. I do believe that there's... Uh, a duty to research the past and acknowledge it. But in terms of settling a financial settlement, financial reparations and putting a sum on these things seems quite ridiculous to me. Thank you, Sean and Christine. And finally, the journalist Yannick Rack writes about the battle to restore Britain's hedgerows. 
He joins us now alongside Clive Matthews, a hedge layer and the founder of the National Hedge Laying Society, which began in 1974. Yannick, to start, could you take our listeners through why you wanted to write about hedge laying this week? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I first came across a, a brief news uh, item just about you know advertising the National Hedgling competition, which actually happens every year. And uh, I grew up in Germany, you know, but having lived at that time uh, in Britain for a couple of years, I was always intrigued by the countryside. You know, it looks very different. You know, you have all these smaller uh, enclosed fields, and I was just really intrigued that this was a thing. And uh, you know, decided to go on a whim. Uh, met met some of the hedge layers there, some of the people who started the society, the, the National Hedge Laying Society, all the way back in the 70s, like Clive, and, uh, you know, got, got to talking to the people there. I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. There's, uh, you know, all these different styles to it, all these different um, traditions and, uh, and the history behind it. It was just really, really interesting. And Clive, how did you first get into to hedge laying? And, and do you think, do you agree with the claim that it's something of a, of a dying art? No, the um, from my point perspective or my point of view, my fa- at the age of fifteen, my father said I got to leave the farm and go and earn a living. So uh, he told me I was a good hedge layer, and I'd cut in some competitions as, as a fifteen-year-old. So from then onwards, for the last seventy odd years, I've been hedge laying. Valerie Greaves and uh, Fred Whitefoot and myself got together in nineteen seventy-eight and uh, thought hedgerows were diminishing and what could we do about it? Having quaffed many flagons of cider <laughs> at a <laughs> competition, which was rather foolish of us, uh, we came up with the idea, why don't we start a National Hedgling Society? And from then onwards, uh, it has grown into the colossus uh, that it is today, uh, whereby we have a National Hedgling Competition every year, sponsored by various sponsors, of which I, fortunately, have cut in 40 competitions in a row. Uh, so uh, I, I was, uh, I've been chairman, I've been uh, secretary, and I've been all dogs, bodies through the society over the years. What is the secret to a good hedge? Uh, the secret is, is well, well maintained, really. Um, everything has its place, even a flail has its place. But to, to, from a hedge layer's point of view, to be able to cut and lay a hedge every 20 years would be really, really nice. The only thing is that there's not enough hedge layers and there's, there's plenty of hedges, but not enough hedge layers. But as the gentleman said just now, with regard to is it a dying art, I don't think so. There's a lot of hedge layers about now, rather more than we used to have uh, in the 90s but not quite as many as we used to have in the 70s. I think a lot of them would rather sit on a tractor. It's an easy way of life than being in the bottom of a wet ditch. (laughs) And uh, Yannick, I wonder if you could tell tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what is it that we lose, environmentally speaking, uh, as we continue to lose our hedgerows. I just wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that. I mean, you write in the piece about this new DEFRA bill, for example. Yeah, so DEFRA actually for a number of years um, has already, and you know, the, the, the sort of scheme of support always changes, but um, you know, DEFRA for a number of years already has, you know, uh, sort of given generous grants, you know, they pay from, from you know, based on the landowners that I've spoken to, um, I think DEFRA pays uh, a majority of the bill for um, landowners to have their hedges professionally laid. Uh, which isn't always uh, cheap. And um, so that's a big incentive for them. Uh, you know, in terms of the benefits, you know, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, you know, they, they store carbon, obviously, which which the government, you know, likes to play up. 
Although from the people that I've spoken to, I think the, the habitat is probably the biggest reason. Um, you know, people talk about the, um, all the threatened species, you know, uh, birds and, and, and hedgehogs and whatnot um, that sort of take shelter in them. And, you know, a hedge, if you just let it grow, if you don't manage it, like, you know, as a hedge layer, like Clive will tell you, um, it just grows into a line of trees, really. And, um, you know, those certainly have their worth. But, uh, you know, a hedge that's sort of kept well, low to the ground and maintained in that way just provides a, a lot of habitat and that's valuable to ground nesting birds and other, you know, small, small animals that sort of take shelter there, provides shelter for, um, you know, livestock uh, and, it you know, protects against erosion, flooding. And like I meant, uh, you know, mentioned the carbon storage, that's that's, you know, all parts that go into it. Yeah, if I could just cut in, one of the things that we had was the stewardship grant, uh, which enabled us to cut and lay hedges with a grant from the government. But um, it's diminished now and it's taken a long time to get your money, uh, which is one of the shortfalls. You could take you 18 months before you got your money. A farmer would outlay two, three, four thousand pound hedge laying and fencing but to get the money was a hard job but having said that the new scheme that's coming out this year hope hopeful think good things to come from it and clive this weekend uh, obviously we have a new king being coronated and, and one i suppose one of the reasons we ran this piece this week is because the king himself is interested in hedge laying and has run competitions at highgrove before can you tell us a little bit about his involvement in the hedge laying society clive and is the king a good hedge layer? Is he, is he a competent hedge layer? <laughs> yeah, most certainly. Um, this goes back to a number of years when the royal show used to be at Stonely, his, uh, the king as is now, came to uh, on our stand. And a very good chap named John Savings had a model of um, a lot of hedges in um, bonsai hedges. He was most interested in it and took a lot of time round the round the uh, trade stand as it was in those days. And he expressed his interest in hedge laying. So uh, we jokingly said, "Well, we'll come down and do some hedge laying at uh, the Duchy Farm." And this was some numerous years ago. So he arranged it with his his equerry and what have you, and we went down and cut um, some lengths of hedges on his um, estate. We had a look at some of his hedge laying, and I didn't tell you what we said about it. But to say that he's improved immensely, and his interest has uh, remained steadfast and loyal for some, I would say, 25 years possibly. He's been patron of the society, and I've been rather fortunate. I've gone down there and laid some of his hedges on a commercial basis for him, which I'm very proud to say he came out and uh, took a great deal of interest in it. And you must always wear the proper jacket. And if you uh, see him, he'll always wear his special hedge lane jacket, which is um, thorn proof and patched as we all wear. Thank you, Yannick and Clive. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. 